are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. The soldiers mocked Jesus. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for reading this. What is the penultimate scripture for us? in Mark's gospel. Last week we were in the garden, this week we're at the cross, and next week the final chapter at the tomb. Asking that table question this morning, I think the cross is certainly common enough in our surroundings. Maybe several memories come to mind. The one that I want to share with you this morning is from a mission trip that was captured here in this photo. A little blurry there, but you can make out a cross there in the center of our German mission team, some of us way up in the Alps in 2015, in the clouds, on a Sunday morning. That was six years ago now, and was really a spiritual milestone in the life of the Y Church. There we were gathered around the cross that morning to pray. Around the world, the cross is the primary symbol of those who follow Jesus. And in Western cultures, be it Germany or the United States, We can really get quite used to seeing the cross, can't we? We can get used to seeing it even as our own countries 
seem to drift further from it. And that doesn't happen just to nations, but can even happen to, to us here, even in a church. Sunday after Sunday, we set up this beautiful handmade wooden cross that Mike Cryer made for us years ago. And we see it, we walk by it, but when was the last time I actually pondered it? We have the pattern and the routine of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but what about in our ordinary life? I was asking myself this week, where is the cross that I see it? Does it command my attention? Does it capture my heart? Do I understand it? And today I want to invite you to walk into this story with me and intentionally take time to reflect on what the cross means personally to you. Because you can see a cross, you can have a cross, you can have it tattooed on your body, but unless you claim the cross as your own, it's just a religious symbol. There is something that happened there for you personally that you have to come to reckon with. And that's what we get to do today. I've marked out the scripture reading as follows. The soldiers, the crucifixion, the darkness, and then we're going to draw in the final couple of verses that we didn't read and talk about the curtain and the centurion. So we begin with the soldiers. It's no longer the temple guard that we ran into last week in the garden. That was when the religious leaders sent out that arresting party for Jesus. That was chapter 14. But then at the beginning of 15, that's when custody transfers to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And in the verses just prior to where we picked it up this morning, that's where Pilate had Jesus flogged and sentenced to death. So these soldiers now, they're not the temple guard. They are of the Roman army. And more specifically, they're probably not native Romans by birth. But what they are is auxiliary forces, recruits from the surrounding nations. So places like Caesarea and Samaria. And what that means is, these are Israel's old enemies. And they would have relished the opportunity to punish the king of the Jews. So Jesus is led into the praetorium, that means the palace, and they're now out of public eye. And they call together the whole company of soldiers to have some fun. Now you and I know how a group of people can gang up on somebody. You've seen it, read it, seen it depicted in movies. How cruelty gets escalated by a crowd, like sharks that smell blood in the water. It's terrible to see I remember back to a scene in high school where there were some upperclassmen who had ganged up on a kid who was unusual, who was just an outsider and socially awkward. And they ganged up on him, not hurting him physically, but absolutely humiliating him. And I was walking by the other direction. And I remember this scene so well because in that moment, I didn't stand up for him and I kept walking. And I've thought of it over the years and wished that I had done the right thing. So you know what this can look like. Jesus was at the mercy of these soldiers and they had none to give him. The account is marked both by physical aggression and how they mock Jesus as the supposed king. 
So what you're seeing here is a kind of parody. That's why they get the purple robe, which was a royal color. They make a crown of thorns. They call out, Hail, King of the Jews, which was just a twist on their usual greeting, which was, Hail, Caesar. And they kneel before him in mock reverence. It says in verse 19, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And Matthew tells us that they had first put that staff in Jesus' right hand as a kind of scepter, a king's scepter. And then they snatched it from him and beat him with it. Now throughout our study this morning, I'm going to refrain from going into too much detail about what they did to Jesus because frankly, not many of us would have the stomach for it and because we have kids with us in worship. But let's just say at this point, Jesus would have hardly been on his feet anymore. He had already been through a Roman flogging, which was notorious. And now this scene in the praetorium. And it concludes by saying that they removed the purple robe, they put him back in his own clothes, and they led him out to be crucified. And that's the second section we come to, the crucifixion. This portion begins with the introduction of a Cyrenian, so that's off the north coast of Africa, a Cyrenian named Simon. And he's coming back into the city, and the execution squad is on their way out of the city. Now Mark refers to this Simon as if he's known to Mark's readers who are receiving this gospel. Because he identifies him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now we know that Mark was writing to a Roman audience. And it's interesting when we flip to the book of Romans and we're reading the greetings. Paul says at one point in chapter 16, greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. And this might very well be the Rufus that's mentioned here. In any case, Simon is on his way into Jerusalem and comes upon this scene. And as I pointed out, Jesus can probably barely walk at this point, let alone carry his own cross. So the soldiers force Simon to do it for him. And the Bible doesn't give us details on this, but we can imagine that this walk would mark Simon's life. Maybe from that point forward. What he's carrying is most likely the cross beam. Only the cross beam of the cross, which was called the patibulum. The vertical beam was normally already in place, planted in the ground. And then the prisoner would carry the cross beam to the site. Whatever the case, Simon is the one who is carrying the load about a thousand feet in distance out to Golgotha. Now, Mark translates Golgotha for us. It means skull place. Why, we don't exactly know, but very likely because this is the place of execution and there's also many tombs that they've noted in the archaeological study. We're not told, but once they're at Golgotha, Mark gets right to the point. You never have to mince words with Mark. He says, verse 24, and they crucified him. No lengthy description. For that audience, none was needed. Everybody back then knew what crucified looked like. The Romans used this method for two reasons. First, they used crucifixion because it allowed them to kill criminals 
by prolonging the pain as long as possible. In fact, our word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion, out of the cross. And the second reason they did this was to publicly dissuade and deter anyone else from stepping out of line with Rome. Crucifixions were carried out along well-traveled roads. Highway 10, 169 would be our equivalents, where everybody coming in and out of town would see what happens to you if you get on the wrong side of Rome. And that's why there was a sign. There's always a sign that said what the charges were. Sometimes it was hung around the neck, and in this case, they tacked it up on the cross. Verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him, colon, the king of the Jews. Now, what kind of charge is that? The king of the Jews, we might ask. Well, for the Romans, there was only one king allowed, and that was Caesar. So the charge is treason. And we know from John that it was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So that everybody passing by could read it and be warned. Now, the public access also allowed anyone who wanted to go and present comment to do so. So Mark says that there were people just passing by, hurling insults at Jesus on the cross and shaking their heads. This is in fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm 22, which we're going to come to again a couple different times this morning. That psalm says, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. There were people passing by. These are chief priests we read about, religious leaders. Even the criminals being crucified alongside Jesus are mocking him. Though we know from Luke's gospel that one of them has a change of heart as he hung next to Jesus. But that's the theme of so many of these verses. As Jesus died for our sins, we mocked him and we sang those words earlier. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Let's go to the third section, the darkness. The darkness, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now let's think first about the timeline. Depending on your Bible... You might be reading times that make sense to us, or it might say things like the sixth hour until the ninth hour. The NIV that we have in front of us here translates that into our own time. And so the scene with Pilate and the soldiers was early that morning. Simon carried the cross out, and then Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. It says in verse 25 that we already passed over. Now three hours later, at noon... At high noon, a supernatural darkness falls across the sky till three o'clock. These are three hours of a God-ordained foreboding darkness. And maybe just in this last week, past couple of days, we've had the tiniest fraction of what this can feel like with these big and dangerous storms that can roll through. How in the middle of the day, it just blots out the sun and It can get so dark in your house that you have to turn lights on. 
And it must have been that times 10 at the cross. We see in the Bible that darkness covering the day is a sign of God's judgment. Amos 8 even foretells this very event and says, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Then listen to this, also in Amos. I will make that time like morning, M-O-U-R-N. I will make that time like morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. So the darkness here is physical, covering the earth, but it is also spiritual. That's what it's showing us. After three hours of darkness and six hours hanging on the cross, Jesus cries out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know this is the only recorded prayer of Jesus in all of the Gospels where he doesn't pray in his own words? But he just directly prays Scripture. Psalm 22. Now Jesus knew the word inside and out. And so to express what he is feeling in the agony of this moment, these are exactly the words that he wanted to use. And so we see and we feel the darkness of the scene, don't we? Jesus feels abandoned by God. Physical agony aside, which we have not described much today, this is actually what Jesus feared the most. Last week in the garden we talked about it. Spiritual separation. The one who had known perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit since all of eternity, here is alone and dying in the dark on a cross. This is what caused him the night before to collapse in prayer and to sweat drops of blood and to ask for the cup to pass. Psalm 22 is being fulfilled. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me read how that psalm continues. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And yet we see that even when Jesus felt utterly abandoned, he affirms his relationship with his Father, doesn't he? What is he doing? He's praying. In desperation, he still calls out to God and he says, My Father, you are still my Father. What is happening at the cross? We're going to talk more about it in just another minute. But for now, let's note that this is what Jesus went through as he bears our sin on the cross. Mark is not so interested in complex theology, is he? He just wants us to feel Jesus' agony. And yet many scholars will point out that when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, this is so often the case in the Bible, he has in mind the whole psalm. So he's referencing a specific spot. But here's this psalm that starts so dark and alone, and yet it goes on to say words like this, verse 24, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. 
He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So at three o'clock in the afternoon, when Jesus said this, the darkness apparently lifted just as supernaturally as it came. And we're given a few last scenes from the cross. First, we have these references to Elijah. And we don't know if somebody misunderstood. It says it's this loud cry from the cross. Jesus is saying what? Eloi, my father in Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi. And we don't know. Did they mishear Eliah, which is Elijah? Or does this have to do with some first century understanding of Elijah? Whatever the case, someone fills a sponge with wine vinegar for Jesus to drink. And in all of these little details, I mean, they're not just there randomly. They are showing us that the Old Testament is being fulfilled. The wine vinegar comes up in Psalm 69. And then we get to verse 37 of Mark 15, the last moment of Jesus' earthly life. And it says, with a loud cry... Jesus breathed his last. Mark does not tell us what that loud cry was. But if we pull in the other Gospels, this is probably the moment when Jesus calls out, it is finished. And then come his final words, and that's recorded in Luke. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And with that, Jesus died. As we sang this morning, it is finished. And the finality of Jesus' work on the cross is shown in what happens next in the temple. And this is where we add a couple extra verses to our reading. Mark takes us to the curtain. When Jesus breathes his last, we get to verse 38, follows immediately after, and it says, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember, the temple is where God had dwelled among his people for hundreds of years, and before that, it was the tabernacle. Not that God is actually contained within a physical building, but this is how God would visibly show his people, I am with you. You are my people. I'm dwelling among you. And then there's priests there who are interceding to God on behalf of the people. Not that you couldn't pray and have relationship with God that way, but the sacrificial system in their worship depended on the priests. And another effect of the temple is that it helped people understand how holy and awesome God is. And that we as sinful people cannot just simply waltz in to the presence of God. But there is some separation that has happened by necessity because of our sin. We can't just, if you were an Israelite, go into the most holy place. To the place where God's presence dwells. It was veiled and sealed off with a curtain. A tapestry. And it was extremely restricted access. In fact, the only person who could enter the most holy place at the center of the temple structure was the high priest. And that only one time each year on the Day of Atonement. We call it today Yom Kippur. And on that day, the high priest would go 
beyond the curtain, through the curtain, into the most holy place, and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people and for himself. So do you see what this means? This curtain stuff, we're not Jewish, we don't have a temple, we have to read our way into it. But do you see what it means? Ordinary people, even ordinary priests, did not have access to the presence of God because sin separates us. It's like your kids coming in one of these past few days with muddy shoes from outside. And they come in the foyer and you're like, don't come in across that carpet. Right? Because they'll make it unclean. They've got to stay outside. And all of this changes because Jesus atones for our sin at the cross. Remember what we asked a few minutes ago. What is happening at the cross? How do we understand this event? The curtain in Mark here is our clue. And the word is atonement. I know that's a big word, but if you divvy it up into three pieces, what does it say? At one mint. At one mint. And what it means is something is being made whole again. It was fractured and broken, but God is putting it back together. There is a repair happening to this relationship. You ever have a falling out with someone? No show of hands, but who of us hasn't? Ever have a falling out with someone or kids, students, a friend? Hurts your feelings? It's not a good feeling, is it? There's something in the way of that relationship. And either it's going to stay in the way or you're going to have to do something about it. The cross is where God does something about the sin that keeps us from him. And he puts our relationship back together. He heals it. Here's what the book of Hebrews says. And we're almost done with this heavier stuff in the atonement. But here's what Hebrews says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence listen to this language, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what's the conclusion? Let us draw near to God. We can The curtain tearing in half in the temple was God's way of showing what happened for us at the cross. That our sin is forgiven and we get to draw near to Him again. You know, this whole topic of the atonement can get really rather complicated. And you can read yourself silly with books about this stuff that outline theories of the atonement and different views on the matter. And I don't mean to oversimplify it, but here's my conclusion. This is what I would recommend. You can do all the reading you want, but let the words of Scripture define the cross for you. Don't zero in on some theological theory or discard something just because it's hard to understand or you don't like it. Use the Bible. And when you do, It's almost like a diamond where you have one gemstone, but you can view it. It's multifaceted, right? So you see it from this light or from over here, and you have this multifaceted, beautiful picture 
that comes into view. So if the language is of love, use love. If the language is of wrath, use wrath. You're going to find language about reconciliation and judgment and sacrifice and redemption and propitiation and the list goes on. It's all there in Scripture to capture the beauty and the power of the cross. And I want to give you just maybe a little tool this week for your own Bible reading. I thought I'd share with you on the screen here my top five Bible verses about the cross, at least this week. You know, next week it might be five different ones. There's that many. But you can take this, you can jot them down, you can take a picture with your phone, and take these five into your Bible reading. Isaiah 53, John 3, Romans 5, Galatians 2, 1 John 4. And you'll need those verses too. If you want to think more about what this means for you, this is where you want to go. What I want to look at to finish is actually a person who didn't understand any of this theology stuff. Actually someone who probably had never read the Bible before. But he saw something that day in Jesus at the cross that stopped him in his tracks. And I'm talking about the centurion. Let me read verse 39 for us. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. What question the Sunday after Easter have we been saying ever since then What question has Mark been wanting us to answer? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The thing that Mark wants us to address and answer for ourselves is who is Jesus. And he gives us the answer key in the very first chapter. Actually, in the very first verse, Mark 1.1, the introduction to his gospel. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then a few verses later, what do we hear at Jesus' baptism? Heaven is torn open, and God the Father says, You are my Son, whom I love. And for 15 chapters, Mark has been pressing us to answer this question. And the first person to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God is not a religious leader, It is not even a disciple. It is none other than a Roman centurion. Do you know what that means? It means anyone can come to know Jesus. Anyone. We've quoted Psalm 22 a lot today, and I think this centurion is the beginning of verse 27 that you and I are still part of today. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. Have you bowed down before Him? Have you recognized that He is the Son of God? Have you knelt down before His cross?
I want to share a picture with you to close, and I want to be careful to not press this analogy too far as I share this with you. But I saw this picture just yesterday, and it captured my attention. This is Sergeant Nicole Gee. She was a maintenance tech with the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit. And this picture was taken a little over a week ago. She had been assigned to assist women and girls at Kabul International Airport. And she was one of the 13 U.S. service members who died. She was 23 years old. A little over a week ago, on August 20th, she posted this picture on her Instagram, and she wrote, I love my job. In the picture, you can see that she's holding a rescued Afghan infant. I just saw this picture yesterday, and it just absolutely captivated me. Because there's something about her face, her tenderness, and the rescued child in her arms that just made me think about what God has done for me. I was helpless. I was on the run. I was in a terrible situation. And God stepped into my world and rescued me. The Son of God gave his life for me so that I could live. And I don't know where this Afghan child is now, but this was over a week ago. Chances are he got out. And I just wonder if one day, years from now, he'll get to see this picture and say, wow, you did that for me. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for me. And I pray that if there's any doubt in anyone's mind today here about that reality, that you would break through and rend hearts open to receive you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for bearing my sin and making a way for me to get back to you. We worship you, Lord. We love you. You are our God, our King, and our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.